0: Welcome to SLP Money, an in-depth conversation for speech, language pathologists, and private practice owners on how to break through to the next level of your career and business. Join your host, Craig Goldslager, a financial advisor and certified exit planner, as he shares strategies and stories that will help you become more financially confident and better invest your time and money. You can learn more and stay up to date at utterlyfinancial.com.
1: Hello, SLP Nation, and welcome to another episode of SLP Money. It's a pleasure to be joined today by Hallie Bulkin, the owner of Little Sprout Speech and the Mayo Membership. Hallie, welcome to the podcast today.
2: Thank you, Craig. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, Again, it's our pleasure, and I'm really excited for today's episode because I think you have so much wisdom to share with our listeners about being a business owner. You've had tremendous success niching down, building full caseloads, as well as diversifying your income streams, all with two little ones running around and running your household. So before we dive into all of your different revenue streams and success you've had as a business owner, can you share with us a little bit about how you got started as an SLP, uh, maybe where you earned your season, what made you want to become an SLP?
2: Sure. I always joke that my journey is a little bit different than most SLPs because I actually started with the intent to be a business major and to take over like my dad's business. And I never saw myself. Actually, I didn't even know what an SLP was when I went to college. Funny thing, because my aunt is a speech-language pathologist. She's very good at what she's done. She's written books. And I had no clue that that was like even a profession or what an SLP, who an SLP was or what they did. So fast forward to college. I volunteer in this clinic. I work with a kid with autism. He, I learned a lot from him. And I was like, huh, like, how do I work with these kids? And so I kind of stumbled upon the education world and the SLP world and eventually found my way into the program at the University of Maryland, fast forward grad school. I stayed there for grad school, and they had this program where if you agree to give them three years out of school working for them, that they would pay part of your tuition and all that fun stuff. So, you know, at that time, being a grad student who wasn't making any money, I was like, I don't really want to work in the schools, but this seems like a good deal, you know, too good of a deal to pass up, and who knows what, you know, what the the market's going to look like when I get out. So I agreed to do that. I went to work for our local school county for three years. I was completely miserable. Like I literally would cry every single day after work. And I was like, this is not for me. I knew this <laughs> before I ever signed that contract, but I knew I had a contract to Fulfill. So I did give them my three years and literally on the last day I was out, I was done. And I just remember being so burnt out that I was like, I'm done. I don't want to be an SLP anymore. And I got into network marketing, which is actually what allowed me to replace my income and leave my day job. I didn't just like leave it to leave it. I left it with the intention and the plan of like, hey, here's income to replace it. And I didn't really know what I was going to do. I thought I was like a network marketer for life. And after eight months, I was like, I really miss working with kids. Like I really need that back in my life. So then I went and worked for a private practice for a year before opening my own practice. And the rest is history.
1: (laughs) You hit on so many great things there. Let's unpack some of that a little bit. First, I think before you made the leap into your own business or your own private practice, you had an income source. So share with us, did you replace 100% of your income? Was this something that you transitioned into sort of one client at a time? Uh, You sounds like you had this comfort level of knowing that my salary is okay. We have an income. We can keep a roof over our head. I'm not diving into the pool head first, so to say, and trying to conduct private practice.
2: Yeah. So at the time that I was in the county, I was single. I wasn't married yet. Didn't, I had a boyfriend, but I didn't have, I wasn't, you know, engaged or married or any of that fun stuff. So my, my responsibilities were fewer, right. Than they are now with two kids and a husband and all that, all the life expenses that come along with the area we live in and all that fun stuff. So that was definitely a little bit easier, I think, because I did take that network marketing opportunity and I did replace my full income. Um, and I did that, within a year of joining that network marketing company. But I was also between the the school job and that, like I wasn't sleeping, which is kind of my MO anyways, but, (laughs) but, you know, I, I was burnt out and it wasn't necessarily because I added in this extra additional source of income. I was just burnt out from like what I had to do in the schools. And I knew that wasn't for me. So, you know, fast forwarding out of there and taking that break, I think I kind of, was able to, um, hit reset and the income was stable ish, but like when you're in a network marketing company and it's, you're, it's like an entrepreneur, you're working for yourself on some level, although someone else actually has more control over your money than you do when you're working for someone else, like even a network marketing company. And I was like, this is, this is still not what I want to do with my life. Like this is a great stepping stone to the next thing. And so I definitely used it as a way to feel secure in making that, that jump out of the schools. And I wasn't really sure where I was going to take it. Honestly, at that point, I was just like, yay, network marketing for life. And then I was like, no, I really don't want to work with overweight adults who complain all day. I really want to get back to working with the kids.
1: I miss my kiddos. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So then I jumped into working with a private practice and I really loved it. I think I've always had entrepreneurial spirit. What I didn't mention was when I was in college, I actually switched to being a teacher, like doing the teaching uh, track for a little while. And at that point I took 18 credits, even over one summer, I took some credits in math, which most SLPs are like math. Like why would like, we don't do math. Numbers are not our thing. And I'm like, what's a verb? What's a noun? Like, <laughs> so I'm like <laughs> totally the opposite of your like traditional SLP. I'm like all about the numbers and not so much about the English skills. And so that's probably why I now do like more of the feeding Mayo stuff versus the language stuff too.
1: Right, exactly. And I think that's so fascinating that you have this innate business background. So just the fact that you had that background is really interesting. And the grunt work, if you will, the paperwork, the intake forms, the answering of phone calls, the client customer service is an underrated aspect of business because it has so much translation to growing your business or even just starting your business. You need to treat people the way they want to be treated, answer their phone calls, because maybe it's the 15th eval you're doing for the month, but it's the first eval for that client, right? So you need to treat that as though it's the most important thing to them because it is. And I think a lot of SLPs, maybe when they're working for another clinician or they're working in the school district or a hospital setting, may not get that appreciation because they're on salary or they're earning it. It's not really theirs and it's not their own. So when did you start Little Sprout Speech?
2: June 1st,
1: 2014, Okay, about so six we're, years ago. Right, and when you first started, it was just you, any business partners, any caseload coming with you from the other practice? People
2: already knew who I was. They also know my aunt um, who would refer to me. And so I didn't get a ton of referrals from my aunt in the beginning by any means, but it was just nice to know there were other people out there who already knew what I was starting and, and understood. What I was doing, and you know, could be a referral source if needed.
1: Absolutely. And when you started the practice, was it a brick and mortar? Did you travel to patients? What was your strategy when first ramping up?
2: Great question. So, um, I share this a lot with people that ask me I've never had a brick and mortar, I've always worked out of my home, out of my car. I've always, prior to the past like year or so, I was traveling to my patients, their homes, preschools daycares, private schools and would just structure my day around like a certain area to make that feasible here in the DC metro area where traffic is horrible. and so in the beginning, you know it was just me and then I got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> a couple months after launching the practice. And I was like, oh, well, I already was thinking about bringing somebody on to take on like the after school kids because I really just wanted to work with the little ones. Um, so at that, that point, I did hire my first contractor. And because there was no brick and mortar and it was a contractor, and she was able to say, yes, I want this client. No, I don't. Work on her own schedule. Basically, you know, we have all the onboarding stuff on our end that we do from a HIPAA standpoint where everybody gets onboarded. But from there, they take over everything else besides billing. So, you know, they are true contractors. So that was, you know, I hired my first contractor that fall. And then it, to be honest, I had zero business plan. I joke that like, I plan on a napkin. I want a business. I want to make this much in business. Okay. That means I just need this many clients. And so that was kind of the place that I've always worked from. And then in in keeping with costs and keeping them low, I was like, I also need this magical system this magical electronic medical record system that is gonna be low cost and that is going to allow me to keep a credit card on file. And that's going to allow, you know, all these different things that I required. And I was able to find a company that was just starting out that wasn't necessarily for speech pathologists. They were for like psychologists and psychotherapists. But I was able to input my own codes and make it work for me. And I'm actually still with that same company today. And I've turned a lot of other speech pathologists onto um, that company. And that's actually Theranest, which a lot of SLPs probably are familiar with if they know me.
1: <laughs> I think what struck me with that conversation is really just the back of the napkin math. I think so many times, not even SLPs in general, just people in general get so bogged down by things that don't move the needle. And when you first are starting out or even growing your business, you set these goals, the big rocks, as they say. So what kind of revenue do I need? Okay, well, what does my caseload have to be? And what do I have to bill per hour? Or how many evals do I need to do to accomplish that goal? And if my caseload gets too big, sounds like, Maybe the caseload wasn't too big, but you got pregnant. So there was another reason to bring on a contractor, but these things happen. So in a common question we always get is, how do you know when it's time to hire your first contractor? And maybe it's because your caseload is full or maybe it's because you got pregnant, right? We, we don't know what will happen, but when you become a business owner, a lot of people predict that the line will be straight up to the right, just like those growth charts that you see, it'll be a straight line, but we know it's not. There's bends in the curve. It's very windy. It's never straight. So I think welcome that reference of just using back of the napkin math to really think about what you want your business to look like. Because as Hallie's sharing, you don't have to have a brick and mortar. Maybe historically that's how things were done, but with the advent of technology and changing societal norms with teletherapy becoming a real thing, not just because of the current environment that we're in, but I think things were headed that way anyway. I think there's a lot of things to explore along that. So what would you say some of the struggles were, that you experienced maybe out of the gate, aside from not realizing when you'd be pregnant or when you'd have to hire the first contractor, maybe some other things that maybe you spent some money on that ended up not being a good resource or just things that sucked your time and prevented you from really growing the business to where you wanted it to get to.
2: So I like to believe I'm pretty savvy when it comes to like knowing what I'm investing in or adding in from a cost perspective. So I wouldn't say that I really invested anything that was not a good investment because I'm also, I was not willing to take on a loan, for example, to start this private practice. I basically wanted to have income set aside as a cushion to use as my funding for whatever I did need to put in place and then build from there basically my other goal, and I talk a lot about, because I do also coach other private practice owners sometimes, but I talk a lot about this is I wanted to pay myself. I wanted money in my bank account at the end of the month. I didn't want a hundred percent of my proceeds after taxes and expenses to be going my net. I needed net profit. I didn't want zero. I didn't want zero or red it needed to be green. So, you know, that was really important for me. And that was a driving factor. Um, uh, And even though I'm not somebody who budgets or sits down and makes this big, fancy business plan, I do know what's in my bank account. I do know where my money is going at all times. And so I think that's like, that's really key. And my, my practice did grow. I grew to six figures in eight months and that was hundred percent private pay. So like, I like to believe that I actually, despite not having all these things, these things that people think you need in place, like I really focus on what are the money making activities? and what's gonna generate the most money so that I can continue doing what I'm doing. And then I just grew it as needed, right? So like I said, I didn't know that I was gonna bring on my first contractor that quickly. I just did it because I needed to. And then I brought on the next one to replace me when I went on leave and then brought on the next one because we had a growing need. And that's, now I have about 20-ish contractors that work with me. Um, So it's really just been growing to meet demand or meet the need.
1: And what would you say? Some of those, again, that's such an important concept from a business perspective. Is that we get lost. That's why the back of the napkin is so good. We get lost in the minutia and not money-making activities. Like we all know how good-hearted SLPs are. Every SLP wants to help everyone. But at the end of the day, when you go into private practice, you are now a business owner. And as Hallie said, you can either be in the red and be negative, or maybe take on credit card debt or lines of credit from the bank to try and keep your business going, or you can run a very profitable business, a very lean business, lean meaning not having a lot of expenses. What would you say some of those most important money making or revenue driving activities were that you focused your attention on to really get you to six figures in eight months?
2: So one was making sure everybody knew I was in business, right? So I'm not somebody who went and dropped brochures off and like ran away, right? I wouldn't go, here's my brochures, I'm in business, run away. No, I had like meaningful conversations with people, whether it was a, a friend of my, like maybe my aunt, letting her know, hey, you know, I opened up my private practice, FYI, if you need anybody to refer to, like, over here. Um, and then just telling friends, telling colleagues, telling people in this space locally, I admittedly did not go into a lot of the pediatrician's offices early on because I was private pay. And I knew that a lot of times when they're referring, they're referring to a ton of other practices in our area that take insurance. And I just didn't want to deal with that. So, you know, for me, it was like, where is my time going to be best spent? Like what relationships can I build that will lead to referrals in the future? And one of the things you talked about earlier that I've always harped on is, you have to deliver the best customer service. Like for me, it was, I was like, I want, and I even have this in my like mission statement or purpose on my website is that I wanted to be like known as the top boutique service in my area where people are not just getting therapy, but they're getting quality therapy where they feel like they're heard, they're listened to. We're not cutting corners. We're delivering, you know, where people must feel like, oh my gosh, this is like over the top. Like I've never had such good quality therapy or customer service. and. You know and not to say that the next therapist is not as good as i am it's just the difference of how we deliver it right and it was a lot of that comes through customer service and making the connection and building rapport with your families and so i didn't have to hit the pavement and market my business because my families all did it for me and it was primarily all word of mouth that led to six figures in eight months and then beyond that i've I didn't double the in the second year, but I did make more than the first year. And then after that, it's pretty much doubled like every year. And again, I don't do paid advertising. I don't, I don't go into I do have referral sources now. They've sought me out. They've learned about me. And that's also because I niched down at one point and became very specific in what I offer myself outside of what my team can do. But I think a big part of that was customer service. And I've done business presentations to therapists before and I've spent a chunk of it talking about customer service. How are you delivering the best possible customer service to your family? Because that's actually what's going to keep them coming back. That's what's going to get their buy-in. That's when they're going to want to work on the stuff that you're giving them. And that's when we're going to start to see real results.
1: Right. And then you mentioned a lot of times people will want to have a big line item for advertising or referral networks and introductions that way. But you talk to any service-based business owner, the best referrals they always get are from happy clients. So just by investing in perhaps some new processes or procedures, or maybe you didn't think you needed to hire someone because it's little sprout speech and it's Hallie's company, Hallie has to answer the phone, but you know what, if you want to grow, you have to delegate. And some of the best business owners I know are delegators. You can't keep it all on your plate. I mean, you can, if you want to keep it your caseload and, but when you're billing by evals or caseload size, you only have a limited number of caseloads that you can personally see. So can you share maybe in addition to some of the things that you said so far, what are some key things that you learned to delegate over time that originally you were like, "I have to do it; it's my business. I, it's my way or no way," and just eventually you realized, "Yeah, I, I need to, to take this off my plate."
2: So one thing is billing. I only bill once a month, and up until I actually lost my billing person, like just prior to COVID, who went on to do like a nannying job. So I'm looking to replace that person, but it's been It's been less during COVID, so it's not been an immediate need, but billing is a big one. And the other one is exactly what you mentioned. And it actually came to me when you asked an earlier question about delegating, right? Giving up that onboarding process to somebody. So for the longest time, even though I brought on an assistant and that assistant was sending the intakes, I was still doing all of the intake calls because I fully believe like in my heart of hearts that they were not going to sign on unless they spoke to me because I'm the face of the business. Even if they're not working with me, they need to hear from me to seal that deal, right? To bring the client on because we're charging some big rates for private therapy. And what I quickly learned after delegating that was I was really letting like the world suck the energy out. Out of me by doing all of these <laughs> onboarding calls, these intake calls, where I, sh- I really shouldn't be doing them, right? Like, I shouldn't be giving free advice for 30 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever it was to people. And maybe that worked in the beginning while I was building my business. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of people who will offer like a 15 minute free consult. And I think that can be great when you're first starting out and you're building. But once you get to the point of you having a full caseload or you getting whatever that caseload is for you, whether that's two days a week or four days a week or whatever, that's the time that I think you absolutely need to bring on somebody because one, you now have the income or you should have the income to do it. And two, you're not going to grow, right? Unless you're able to delegate and fully be present in the things that actually make you money, um, and so for me, that actually opened up more time with my family, more time with delivering on things that I promised my clients, more time on adding in a few extra clients, or maybe even taking on a couple extra evals a week, which also was a nice income boost. You know, the evals for us are more than a, a therapy session. So, you know, I I look at how much money is this making me in this time frame, and when I started to look at things that way, and you know. Let's say only half the people sign on that do an onboarding call. Well, how much time am I wasting every week where I could be paying somebody at a much lower rate to be doing this onboarding? And so that was a, that was a huge one for me. And that was really, really hard for me to give up because I like, like I said, like that was part of my identity. Like I was like, this business is me. I have to do these calls. And so I really struggled with that.
1: I think that's just an entrepreneurship and you mentioned how you've had that background. A lot of entrepreneurs have that type A personality where it it, is their business. They're going to do it. I believe people are coming to me because it is my business. But again, that's getting started, but you'll reach that inflection point where you need to continue growing and you need to continue building. So that's really helpful advice for those maybe who are realizing they're reaching the maximum caseload that they can have and they're still answering the phones or they're still processing paperwork or they're still factoring in assessments and you just need to and it's hard at first but what i would encourage people to do is really just try and let go of things that start with one thing that you can think about delegating whether it's answering the phone right you might think you have to answer the phone but as soon as you give it up and someone starts doing it it becomes a lot easier to start doing the next one so start with one and continue on from there another thing that you brought up which is really interesting and i'd like to spend some time on now so you started little sprout speech six years ago and when you started it, was your intention to be a generalist working with everyone or were you always focused on myofacial feeding?
2: So I was doing feeding then, um, but I was definitely more a generalist and generalists working with the infant and toddler population. That was really my my love, right? So I was doing speech, language, feeding, all that stuff. And then I was getting really frustrated because, you know, and I, and I had other therapists to treat kids who were, you know, other populations, other ages, but I got really frustrated with these kids who have these, severe speech sound disorders who are like mouth breathing or drooling all the time. Like we just could, I could, it just didn't make sense to me. Like why could we never make progress with these kids? And then I fell into the world of myofunctional therapy and it was all over after that. It was like, oh my gosh, like this is the missing piece to the puzzle. So at that point, just sort of by default in my complete fascination and obsession with everything myotots and airway um i went down a a rabbit hole i decided to get certified in it by the iaom and from there i realized my own child had a tongue tie and lip tie i realized i had a tongue tie realized i needed to go into adult expansion and all this other you know whatever medical stuff we won't get into but that put me both in the patient seat the mom seat and the practitioner seat and so now i was seeing this from all three angles and it really became my my life And I got to the point where I was like, you know what, I don't want to treat anything else. And I became super niche, you know, in what I'm treating. And so to this day, I only see feeding, Mayo, Tots, infants, children, adults, basically. And my team does the rest. So like we are still, as far as a practice goes, generalist, but then I have my specialists within the practice who do different things, including myself
1: niche or niche however you pronounce it it's a big buzzword today in business and i think a lot of people have success but oftentimes it sort of evolves naturally a lot of slps i meet ask me well should i focus on one disorder should i focus on one area of the profession and i think what hallie's talking about is that she had this Innate skill where she realized that, wow, I keep seeing these recurring problems with a lot of patients that I see or clients or my caseload. And I want to figure out what's going on here because these people are finding me. You had this fascination with it. So you dove a little deeper. You joined the IAOM to become a certified orofacial myologist. And you can always find additional information to build those skill sets. But a lot of times it just happens where it comes to you. So Usually, it makes sense to start as a generalist, work in the different populations, work in the different settings, and then figure out how to get more narrow and dive deeper from there. So as you started niching down further, I know that you've been working on some other projects to help other SLPs who are interested in learning more about the Mayo world. So I want to talk about that for two reasons. One, about how clinicians who are interested in this world can learn more information, but two, how as a business owner now you've done one of the most important things a business owner can do, which is diversify income streams. So let's talk a little bit first about your courses and your memberships and your networks that you started to help other SLPs develop skill sets and improve their skill sets for the Mayo world.
2: Sure. So it all starts with my podcast um, and. I had joined some groups actually, uh, like business groups, more and more like transformational coaching program type groups, like one specifically with this, uh, this guy, Jim Porton. And he's one of my mentors. I'm now in his business training version of that, but I started out in his basic transformational coaching program. And I got into that for business purposes. And then when I got on there, in there, I was like, oh my gosh, I have so many life things I need to work on first, which I think a lot of people don't realize. A lot of people go business, business, business. Well, hold on. If you wanna be a business owner, you need to have all your ducks in a row. Like You also need to make sure that your life is in a good place and that your relationships are in a good place and that you're gonna, if you're not supported by people around you, you need to be able to be that full, that full support system for yourself or find a community that you can belong to that's gonna support you in what you're doing. I'm very thankful that I have a very supportive family and community um, in terms of you know everything I wanna do in my business life. So I think that's definitely made that avenue a little bit easier. But I started there and then I found um, this other gentleman, James Wedmore, who has business by design, which basically teaches, how you have, teaches you how to do all these things online. And one of the things that I just happened to fall upon, well, not really fall upon, it wasn't there, was I went looking for a podcast in the Mayo space. And I was like, well, there's like an episode someone did here and here, but there's literally nothing podcast doesn't exist. And so immediately, like my brain doesn't go, oh, it doesn't exist. Okay, I'll go find something else. My brain goes, oh crap, it doesn't exist. I have to create it. So that's where I started. I started with the podcast and I I focused it in on myotot's Tots, Airway, and then also feeding, which is my my fourth love. And I was already doing all of these things in my business. And so I basically shared my journey, my daughter's journey, and then also invited on other professionals in the space to come and talk about different topics, because I just felt like it's not a newer field, but it is a field that's become really hot. Like myofunctional therapy and TOTS and airway have become like, it's like their buzzwords. And this is what everybody wants to get into now. And so, you know, I wanted to bring my, like, like I say on my podcast, I wanted to bring the information to the masses. I wanted to make it readily available so that people could understand what it is we do, why we're doing it, how it helps you, how it impacts the full body, so on and so forth. Right. So I started there, and that was completely funded by me. It was really expensive to launch it and to keep it going for a while because I was not editing it myself. And I now have been able to save some money by finding by hiring a virtual assistant who does that as part of like his weekly uh, activities for me.
1: That but- little delegation strategy.
2: Exactly. Right. So, you know, so that's definitely not uh, as much of a money suck I will say, as it was in the beginning. But the one thing I've done is I've been consistent with that. And I, I grew a following because of that. And so from there, I had this idea. I was like, all right, there's this other guy, Stu McLaren, who has a membership uh, program and teaches you how to create memberships online. And so I bought his program. That's the one I, never, I bought and I never did it. And I was kind of like, I know I'm going to do it but I'm not quite ready for it yet. And then my, my good friend, Teresa, who I know you've, uh, you know, was kind of like, she's like, Hallie, somebody has got to create a course to teach therapists how to become pediatric feeding therapists. Like she's like, selfishly, this is for my own needs, but really like just our profession needs it. And there are courses out there, but the problem is that a lot of us didn't get that information in school. And I was like, okay. I can do this, but I can't do it alone because I haven't worked in every environment where you treat these patients. I don't work with the medically complex kiddos. I work with kids who have tethered oral tissues and feeding issues resulting from from that and maybe some airway issues, but that's the extent of my medical knowledge. So, again, delegate, right? I went out and I formed a team of other people to help me co-create this course. And I basically fully funded it, worked with the marketing team, did all that fun stuff. Um, And that was also a, a expensive endeavor, but one that I absolutely loved every step of the way. And so that's when Feed the Peeds was born. And so we created the course. We actually started working on this, this concept last August, and the team was hired around that point, but we didn't really hit the ground running with everything until about like November, December. And then between December and March, when we launched our first course, we built up a list of about nine thousand or so therapists, SLPs, and OTs interested in becoming feeding pediatric feeding therapists. And then we launched our first course in the middle of COVID, <laughs> which was super fun. Um, but we had everyone, really- everyone's at home
1: though. Everyone, home Right, has exactly.
2: Time. Well, and right. So it's either like everyone's at home, or everyone's at home because they don't have any work. Right? So some people are like, I can't afford this. And other people are like, oh, I have so much more time now. And then we launched it again the second time in June. We'll launch that once more mid-September. And so that's Feed the Peds. Now from, from Feed the Peds, I knew that I wanted to create this myo membership, which is a bit different because not everybody who does pediatric feeding wants to do functional therapy. However, I think that you need to understand a background in myo and have a background in tethered oral tissues and TOTS. Um, if you wanna be a pediatric feeding therapist. So I built those modules into the Feed the Peds program. And then from that, I've got some people who are interested and now we're also marketing to other markets as well to registered dental hygienists and dentists and SLPs who are in the Mayo space who may not be pediatric feeding therapists. And we just did a soft launch of the Mayo membership and we'll do that official launch at the end of the summer. So that's all that fun stuff.
1: There's so much to unpack there, but before <laughs> we dive into a little bit about Feed the Peds and myo membership, some questions that I have, I want to help the listeners identify what you did. And there's a wonderful book that was written in 2004 called Blue Ocean Strategy. Have you read that book, Allie? I
2: have not.
1: So what Blue Ocean Strategy talks about is identifying what you did by creating your podcast was you found a Blue Ocean Strategy. You found something that was a wide open marketplace, just like a wide blue ocean, with nobody swimming in it. And you identified that there was a need and you identified that people wanted to come there, they were willing to come there and that it served your marketplace really well. So what happens after a while, a blue ocean strategy can then become a red ocean strategy where other clinicians or other people who focus on oral disorders can come in and start trying to create their own courses and their own membership and everything. But what the book is really helpful with is strategizing on finding these blue ocean opportunities that exist. So I hope the listeners take note that you can find these opportunities and all of this seems to have happened organically because of your interest in these disorders. You went down these rabbit holes, if you will, and you found out that, you know what, people have a thirst for this knowledge no one's talking about it. Let me invest some of my money because as business owners, we all have one asset that traditional employees don't have, your business, and you can always choose. You mentioned earlier about taking some profit, but instead of investing it traditionally, maybe into a retirement plan or some normal investment strategies, you can now invest into your business. And one of the reasons people wanna get into business or grow businesses is because they can experience growth rates and rates of return that you can't in traditional investment vehicles. So thinking about the blue ocean strategy, really wonderful to think about as you created the Myo membership, feed the peds, but I wanna bring it back to delegation also because had you kept answering the phone, had you kept running it as a one or three woman business, there's no way any of this could have happened. And now you've also diversified income because prior to 2020 nobody could have ever known something like a coronavirus or a pandemic would even happen and now business is a little slow maybe caseloads have dropped you have all these other alternative revenue sources to help support your family continue your business put money wherever you want to put it but now you have all these different revenue sources so as we're talking about myo membership feed the peds all the business itself you have all these different income streams how did you determine goals or set objectives for running these ancillary businesses? Because they do take time to run. They do take costs, startup costs, investing costs. Share with us, if you will, a little bit about what went into that startup process for these ancillary businesses.
2: Sure. So Feed the Peas specifically, um, when I was getting going with that, aside from these programs, I paid you know, money to to learn how to do this online. I basically got into it and I was like, I also have a private practice, right? So I can't just do this all myself. And I don't want to do it all myself. If we leave it to me, it's probably going to take five years to create. And at that point, I might just say, forget it. So I've actually had it in the back of my mind already for several years that I was going to create an online business that I was going to, you know, create an online membership. Um, I actually bought like Stu McLaren's program, I think two or three years ago, and then never did a thing with it. So I was like, if I'm doing this, i it's like, go big or go home. And so I hired a marketing team, I hired a Facebook ads team, I hired a copywriter. And I sat with all of them and I was like, I might learn some of these skills. Oh, and I also hired a virtual assistant. And I was like, I might, be able to learn some of these skills or we might put certain things in place that we can then like wash, prints repeat and use in the future. So I might not need this entire team going forward, but for at least the first launch, this is what I need in place for me. I also in the with before the second launch, actually hired one of my students from the course, who's now a graduate um, or she just graduated with her, her master's in speech pathology. And she's now my integrator. And she basically, I joke like without Jess, I'm lost in the sea of all things business. Like she is the person that keeps me and everything floating and going, and she does a lot of admin stuff, but also does customer service stuff for the online side of things. So she's kind of like my online business manager. So I think what's really important, what people don't realize is that you can bootstrap this process, but it's gonna be so much slower. So, you know, I know people who create online resources or have TPT stores, and I don't know what they're making. I have no clue. Um, But my goal is I want a six-figure launch. I wanna make, if I'm gonna put my time and energy into this, it has got, at this point of my career, and how much I make from my private practice, this needs to be worth the amount of time and energy I'm going to put into this. And so my goal was $100,000 with the launch. And we actually did 95 uh, on March 16th in the middle of COVID, which I think was phenomenal, because I think it would have been a lot higher having not been in a pandemic. But I was, I was super, I was very pleased with that, because it was actually a really great size group to start with. And what people don't realize is that I invested probably about like, I think it was around $50,000 to get this off the ground. So I invested more than what some people make in their salary, right, in a day job to get this course launched. And I don't think anybody really appreciates that until they start to understand how much goes into running an operation this size. You know, we then went on to do a lot more in our second launch. Um, and my goal for the second launch was that I wanted to take 20% of net proceeds and donate it back to my community. I always joke, this is a joke, but it's kind of serious. I don't want to, I really don't know that I want to treat for the for the rest of my life. And right now I've taken a big break in treating. I'm only treating like two patients right now that are some long-term patients that I've been working with. I only see one of them every couple of weeks. It's all virtual, 30 minutes. So the fact that I'm not treating means I need other people to do this work (laughs) and it's really hard to find these therapists that have these skill sets or that are willing to put in the same type of energy and effort that I am. Um, And so I joke that if I can create the course and teach these people, these therapists to take over all these clients, that I won't have to treat them anymore. Um, So it's a little self-serving in that sense, but that's kind of my like running joke if I just, you know, create all the therapists and they can do it, then I don't have to anymore. But, but really my goal is that the, we have a lot of children that are underserved. There is a lot of areas with a huge need for all things, my and feeding, and there are not enough therapists that are skilled in doing it. And what I learned from them is it's simply one, because of lack of access to the information and huge fear of hurting the patient because we're actually dealing with medical things um, that are very different. It's much easier to go work on. I won't say it's easier to work on language. I don't want to downplay it but you're not going to send somebody to the hospital if you do the wrong strategy today in a language session, unlike a swallowing session.
1: Well, I mean, that fear is one reason why people would hold back and not enter into that. So it makes total sense that there would be a shortage of therapists with those skill sets. I want to share with the listeners a couple of key terms that you mentioned in there when you talked about hiring your first integrator, a really good book and reference point is a book called Traction and Traction helps explain adding members to your team. So everyone starts out most, like most of you listening started your business and are continuing to grow it as a solopreneur, just like Hallie did, there was no partnership, at least to start. And now she was the visionary, which is another key role. She has this foresight of where she wants to take the business. We talked about rocks earlier, those big rocks that are the big ticket revenue generating items, right? That's the responsibility of the visionary and that's usually the CEO or the founder. But in order to continue that growth you need someone who is an integrator who really is your front woman in the business and helps do all the stuff that hallie was mentioning delegating things right that's your first delegator source and then as your team expands maybe you have a sales and marketing team or an operations team or a number scrunching team or a finance team right the team grows and grows as she mentioned she had dozens of contractors just in her speech business but now she's built these other teams to support these other ancillary businesses and so I think as we begin to wrap up this conversation, none of that could have been done had she not taken the first steps to start and grow the business again, six figures in eight months, which is an incredible accomplishment. And then doubling that from there annually, just remarkable figures. And as you grow, then that's where you realize you have to start delegating using your resources wisely. And I th- Appreciate so much you sharing those figures about the investments that you made. You very easily could have spent that fifty thousand dollars on your life. You could have put it towards a down payment in a house. You could have gone on vacation. You could have done anything with it. It's your money. It was profit. But you made the choice as a business owner to reinvest into the business, which is always a common question that I get from other business owners. And it's such a personal decision. Nobody can tell you what you want out of your business, how you want to grow it. Some people want to grow their practices to hundreds of employees or contractors multiple settings brick and mortar others want to be very lean like halle bill where you go place to place no brick and mortar there's no right answer i think a lot of times people just want to download a guide and see the answers but so much of being a business owner is off the cuff and figuring it out as you go and as you transition and as you mentioned you've had multiple launches of the course The second launch is always going to be better than the first because you learn from those mistakes. The third is going to be better than the second. Same with your time in business. Every year should be getting better and you should be growing and learning from some of those mistakes. So again, with the title of our podcast being SLP Money, one question I have for you is, especially with a business background, one of the the few SLPs that I've met that actually has the business background, what's the best financial advice that you've ever received that you've implemented either into your life or your business?
2: It's a good question. I don't spend more than I make. That's probably the biggest thing and I think that's always been a value of mine like something that is part of my identity that you know I know it's in my bank account and I'm not willing to spend more than what I have in there. I'm also not willing to bring my bank account down to zero in doing so. So if I'm going to do this, I need to make sure that there is a cushion and that Yes, it's a risk to invest any type, any amount of money, regardless of how much money you have in your bank account. Um, but I think taking yourself down to zero or taking yourself into the red when taking some of these risks risks for me personally felt irresponsible. And so I often would wait until the point where I felt like, okay, I have a good enough cushion now that if it costs me X, like I'm still good, even if I lose all this income, like I'm un- unattached to what happens.
1: I think that's such a wonderful framework to have one living below your means is certainly important because that's how you grow wealth, build wealth, build a business, but also just not being willing to sacrifice your morals and know that, you know, a lot of times people don't realize how easy it is to put something on a credit card or take out a business line of credit and, oh yeah, business will be great. I'll pay it off. And you get lost in some of these things that we mentioned earlier, these small minutia, not the big things that move business. And Hallie, you've given us so many wonderful examples today of things that you can do that are limited in cost and totally in your control. And you've now grown, I don't know if it all operates under the same entity, that's not important for today, but whether or not you now have these multiple lines of income and revenue to, again, support all of these different endeavors, the willingness you have to give back to the community, that's such an important message. And A lot of times clients or customers appreciate that and they know that and they're willing to support causes, especially if they align with similar beliefs. So thank you so much for sharing all that information. As longtime listeners of the SLP Money Podcast know, we're all about taking action on the podcast. So Hallie and I are gonna leave you with three action items that you can all take to help continue growth and building your business that you desire. So I think number one, the biggest takeaway that I had for today is find some task that you do that you might consider monotonous but that you are doing and find a way to delegate it. Whether it's a virtual assistant, a 1099 contractor, take something off your plate and delegate it to someone. So anything you'd like to add to that?
2: Um, I think the other thing that I coach on is like you said before, so many times already today, is that as therapists, we we're out there to save the world, right? We get into this because we want to help people. You have to take your therapist hat off when you talk business, and I, I basically this is exactly what I tell everybody: put on the business hat, take the therapist hat off, think with your analytical brain, and stop thinking with your heart. Because if you are fully working from emotion and a place of oh, what are people going to think of me, or oh, you know. Is this, obviously we want to do things that are in the best interest of our patients and our clients and our families that we work with, or, you know, therapists, if we're creating courses, Um, but that business mindset and knowing your numbers and understanding things from a business perspective needs to be clear and separated from that mindset of being a therapist.
1: Which evolves over time. And that actually leads to my second action point is I know most of you did not go to business school or you don't have these business backgrounds. There's so many resources available to you, whether it's consultants or coaches, like find a coach. You listen to a success story today of someone who built from zero to hundred thousand dollars in eight months, continues to ramp up and grow it, but she's continuously seeking coaching advice to continue growing. Because one thing I know that you're an advocate of one saying that I'm a big advocate of is you don't know what you don't know. And that's why you hire a coach, because they can shave time, money, frustration, because they work with dozens or hundreds of you to help you accomplish what you're looking for. And then the number three resource I would say is think about some of those blue ocean strategies that we mentioned today. Maybe you are starting to see a similar type of caseload. Maybe you're operating in a certain type of setting and there's a frustration or a bottleneck in your process or the hospital's process or the school's process. And maybe you can innovate and iterate and try and find some, something that no one else is doing. And then again, start a podcast, start a blog, start videos. Just if you're feeling the pain, other SLPs in your situation are certainly feeling that same pain. So start, and again, whatever your content creation method of choice is, blog, video, podcast, YouTube, you can find what you're comfortable with. And so I think getting that message out there is is just the start because like Hallie said, there, is no, there was no one doing what she was doing, but she just knew based on her experiences that others were going to have these same pain points and these same problems. And now it's led to multiple additional businesses, continuing her original business and growing the caseload to extraordinary levels. So just it takes some outside of the box thinking. And again, one of the ways that you afford yourself time and your schedule is by opening up your calendar for thinking time. You need to do that. You need to block time on your calendar to move those big rocks and big picture items. So with all that being said, again, Hallie, thank you so much for joining us today. If any of our listeners have additional questions for you, maybe they want to reach out to you, learn more about some of your coaching programs, some of your membership programs, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you?
2: Um so they can email me at clientcare@feedthepeds.com at Um, if they want to learn about the course that's just feedthepeds.com and then the membership is themyo-membership.com.
1: Thank you so much again for joining us and again to all the listeners thanks for tuning in today and we'll catch you on the next episode of SLP Money.
0: You've been listening to SLP Money hosted by Craig Goldslager. Want even more ideas on how to make smart financial decisions? Head on over to the Learning Center at utterlyfinancial.com, where you'll find more information for SLPs and private practice owners. While there, you can also schedule a complimentary 30 minute consultation with Craig. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help more people discover SLP money. Thanks so much for listening.
1: Materials discussed is for general and informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investing advice. While the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations may vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual and professional advice. Craig Goldslager is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 2 South Biscayne Boulevard, Suite 1740, Miami, Florida, 33131, 305-371-6333. Securities, products, and financial services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Utterly Financial is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian, Craig Goldsiger does not maintain specialized licenses or qualifications for the financial services provided to speech language pathologists and private practice professionals. California Insurance License 0 k 78754 Expiration 106603 2022.